Hello and welcome to the first episode of Talking to Lead Hers, the podcast where we extend the conversation around female entrepreneurship beyond the challenges and instead focus on positivity and the actions we can each take to drive change. I'm Katie Nagy-Denagy-Maxson, M&A partner at CMS. In today's episode, I'm talking to Julie Baker, Head of Enterprise and Climate Engagement and Partnerships at NatWest Group, and Caroline Hughes, co-founder and CEO of LifeTies, a financial planning platform. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. So, Caroline, I'm going to start with you. What is LifeTies? So, we are a life planning platform. And what does that mean? It means that we help consumers mainly under the age of 40 plan how to afford major life goals, things like buying a home, having kids, And so we help them achieve those goals. And then on the other side, we help banks and insurers and fintechs who want to connect with our audience, learn how to do that more effectively, acquire those customers and engage with them better over the course of their lives. And Caroline, your platform is gender neutral, but you've mentioned there some pretty key events that happen in um, women's lives in particular. And When I look at your platform, female financial empowerment seems to be a kind of key driver behind the business. Do you think that's an area in which we are underserved by the fintech community? Oh, yes. (laughs) And from my perspective of the business, that actually gives me a huge opportunity because this is really where the growth is going to come over the next couple of decades. And I think so fintech so far has largely replicated traditional financial services and just updated the delivery to digital. And of course, traditional financial services were built around men's financial lives. And no one really gave that much thought to how women's financial lives are different and how they've changed over time. Plus, most fintech founders are men, so they don't have the insights necessarily to capitalize on making products that work for women as well. And that's easy for me. (laughs) I can see what women need from financial services and I can build for that. And as a founder, I always look at how can I grow the market? And here there's a really clear route for me to do that just by making it easier for women to get what they want out of financial services. So what do women need then out of financial services? Well, I think it's, it's all built around like how do our lives differ and I guess the primary way in which they differ for a lot of women is if you take time out for to raise a family and so we see at different stages of women's lives you start off with say the gender pay disparity so whether that's that you see a over concentration of women in lower paid jobs um, or you see women being paid less for the same roles in different industries so you have the gender pay gap And then that compounds over time. And then if women take time out for a family, you get what's called sort of the motherhood tax. (laughs) So you have time out, you're not making as much money. And then when you come back to work, you're often coming back part time. Your earnings tend to be capped at, I think we peak earnings at age 39, whereas for men, it averages at 49. So we kind of have this decade where we lose out on making a lot of money. And if you compound that over time, then you see that in pension pots, we have maybe a third to a half of what the average man has. And you add it all up and it can come to between 200,000 and 300,000 pounds over the course of a lifetime. And we're just not really addressing that at the moment. So I build products which reflect women's lives. So we built 
our first tool was HomeFinder, helping people um, buy houses because that represents financial security for a lot of people. And then the second product we built was Childminder, which is how do I afford the cost of childcare? Because it's huge. And typically it tends to be women whose salary suffers because their salary or their earnings goes towards funding childcare. So we're looking at it kind of systemically around what are the things that affect women financially that aren't being catered for right now in financial services? Because if I solve that, I grow the market enormously. Although I, as a woman and as someone who is interested in these um, issues, I, I know I know that I know the gender pay gap, I know the motherhood tax, but I'm slightly scared by your statistic about the pension pots, um, <laughs> which is um, uh, it, it's it's really interesting. And um, certainly as a as a consumer myself, um, I have to say that um, a, a lot of um, those kind of financial planning apps uh, just don't appeal to me at all. Um, so it's it's really nice to see something that is. It's just much more appealing to me as a as a woman. I think lots of women find financial services a bit kind of scary, and and it's very very male, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it. it we always went about it with what can we build that reflects people's real lives? How can we put money back into the context of people's lives in a way that everybody can understand it? And the way that you do that is not making it so much about money, but making it about people and what are they trying to achieve. And if you do that, people recognize themselves in it, right? You're just always just trying to reflect the consumer and what the consumer is trying to do. And it just so happens that 50% of the world is female. So we should reflect their financial lives too. Julie, you work at the other end of the scale in terms of the financial services community. Obviously, NatWest is a, a huge banking group. Can you tell us a bit about your role at NatWest? Yes, thank you, Katie. And uh, after 20 years of uh, looking after commercial clients, uh, five years ago, I was given the opportunity to set up the enterprise team at NatWest, where we had the responsibility of finding new and in innovative ways providing enterprise support across the UK and especially to those harder to reach communities in business. Uh, so this included NetWest setting up a, an accelerator programme and pre-COVID we have 12 accelerator hubs around the country. Um, since COVID we have digitised the programme and renamed it Business Builder, um, providing that support digitally. Uh, but this support includes um, activities such as coaching, um, mentoring, connection to valuable ecosystems and really important for businesses, especially those smaller businesses seeking to grow, mastering the pitch. Um, and I'm delighted to say that we're seeking to get 60% females through those programmes. That's a brilliant statistic, Julie. Have you found that um, you said that you, you've changed those accelerator hubs to being um, something that's virtual. Have you found that um, the people who are coming through your program has changed? Has, it, has going digital made it easier to reach those sort of hard to reach communities or actually has it made it harder or, or, or is there just no change? Uh, really interesting, Katie, that, um, you know, by digitising the programmes, and of course, we all had to act at pace last year, nobody saw COVID coming. And, and so the pivoting to um, digital business support, you know, acted pretty rapidly. And I'm delighted to say, you know, we had a lot of learnings along the way, for example, um, with face to face sort of networking um, events, you would probably have a pre-networking and post-networking sort of drinks, just talking to each other, getting to know each other. 
Um, much more difficult to do that on uh, sort of digital platforms. But I've got to say, we're delighted with the numbers that came through. And what we are seeing is an increase in females coming through because they haven't got that travel time. You know, most sessions are 45 minutes to an hour max. And um, over, over the period of the, uh, the last few months, we've seen far more sort of interaction. And uh, we've also had to pivot our unique Women in Business Accreditation Programme, which is a programme that we run for our relationship managers. It's unique to NetWest. Um, but we, we, we put our, our relationship managers through a, a one-day programme so they really understand the barriers faced by female founders and how they can support and tackle. Um, those barriers and help uh, the customers that we serve. Um, so they provide tailored support. And that tailored support is built around um, access to information because you don't know what you don't know, access to educational type material and webinars and events, and really important access to networks and ecosystems because a lot of female founders don't know who to reach out to, where they can get that support, and quite often for free as well. And that includes local enterprise partnerships, the British Library, growth hubs, um, lots of valuable support networks out there. And, and of course, really important access to role models and those that inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs. So um, we launched our um, Lead Hers campaign two years ago, and you both spoke at our, our launch event, um, which was shortly after the, the publication of the Alison Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship. One of the things that we certainly liked about the Rose Review was its focus on the positive actions that others can take to support female founders. And since then, you've been really, really busy at that West, Julie. So many different things happening as sort of follow-up initiatives to the Rose Review. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those initiatives to support female entrepreneurs? Uh, yes, absolutely, Katie. And um, as, as you said, the Rose Review was requested by HM Treasury just about two years ago um, now, and uh, it tackles the barriers faced by entrepreneurs. But it was always about working on the interventions. It wasn't going to be one of those reports that just get hidden in the drawer. And of course, the headlines at that time, and they're still relevant, if females were to start and scale businesses at the same rate as men, it would be it would mean a further £250 billion to the UK economy. And Theresa May, who was the Prime Minister at the time, stood up at the launch and said, we need an extra 600,000 new businesses set up by women by 2030. So we're just about to release the Year 2 Progress Report, and I'm proud for the progress made on the interventions to date. And there are eight interventions, um, but the biggest barrier, which won't be a surprise to anybody listening today, remains access to finance. And that's at every stage of the journey, whether you're a business starting up, um, too often we find that women are still bootstrapping and funding on credit cards and from family sources and not going down the, uh, the more formalized funding routes and all the way up to the scale up space where there's still some horrific statistics on the, the lack of investment that goes to female founders. Um, so the first three interventions all tackle removing the barriers in accessing finance. And the first one, and we can talk about this a little bit more detail in, in more detail later, was the launch of the Investing in Women Code back in 2019. And we now have 80 signatories to that code. Um, the second one was looking at funds specifically to support diverse uh, founders, including women. And so I'm delighted to say that at NatWest, um, Alison Rose in January 2020 set up a billion pounds of funding ring fence for female entrepreneurs. 
And for those of you that are close to the news, you, you will see that Alison just a few weeks ago increased that to 2 billion because actually during 2020, um, we saw unprecedented demands from our female founders and we lent over a billion pounds to our female um, women in business customers. And the initial funding pot was going to be um, right through to 2025. So we've actually added another billion to that now in fairness, which we're delighted um, to do. And, and the final um, intervention around tackling the barriers to access to finance was all in that investor space. And we have a Rose Review Council chaired by Alex Bailey. I'm delighted to say that they've recently launched guidelines and best practices for VCs, investors, um, and institutions. Um, we work with Diversity VC, who have set up some standards. And also there's an Invest in Women hub showcasing case studies and um, signposting for any woman that is seeking um, investment. Julie, do you think um, in relation to um, that, that debt that you offered, I mean, that's, that's brilliant news that there was you know, such fantastic take up of it. Do you think the fact that it was ring fenced for female entrepreneurs made a difference to um, women wanting to apply for it? I think there's two elements to why it was such a success. I think the fact that we've openly gone out there and said to all female founders, look, we've got some funding here that is ring fenced for you. It's made them actually ask the question, actually, I can go to the bank and ask for money because I think there's been a, a resistance to do that in some cases. But also we've really got to look at what happened last year and take the learnings from last year. And all of the banks across the finance sector overnight had to rebuild systems and processes to set up um, the civils and bounce back loan systems really quickly. And, and especially with the bounce back loan systems, when you look at the process, it was clear that uh, the female founders really liked the simplicity and the digitization. And it took away any biases from the application progress. So they had to ask um, or answer five questions in the process. Obviously, it was reviewed by looking through the, their account as well. But, you know, the, the, the pace of it, the digitized question, the fact they didn't have to go into a bank, sit with a bank manager and prepare lots of business plans and forecasts was certainly, um, you know, encouraged more women to work to go down that route. Caroline, um, as Julie said, access to funding, you know, number one issue that came out of the Rose Review. What's been Lifetize's funding journey so far? Yeah, so I would agree on both a personal level and on a wider level that access to capital is still the biggest obstacle to growth. And I think everyone knows the stats. We see them all the time and they sort of, I think, they might lose their impact because we see them all the time, that roughly 2% of venture capital goes to women. And of course, a tiny, tiny fraction of that goes to black women, for example. And at the same time, our businesses are shown to outperform from a financial returns perspective by sort of 60% or more. So I was always quite aware of that. I've been sort of plugged into the entrepreneurial ecosystem for a number of years. And so those stats were very much kind of at the forefront of my mind as I was building LifeTies. So I bootstrapped LifeTies for a couple of years, partly because I wanted to de-risk it um, for incoming investors, but also because 
I know how hard it is for women to get funded, particularly in those very early stages. So I knew that I would need to have solid traction in a way that perhaps a male founding team wouldn't. Perhaps they would be able to get funded on the potential of the business rather than the already proved performance of the business. So I kind of went into the whole process quite clear-eyed about it. And we have raised from angel investors. We have some fantastic and very, very well-respected fintech angels backing us. I also wanted to have more women investors on the cap table. And what we see is that there aren't as many women angel investors. Um, again, it hasn't been something that traditionally women have invested in. So to get more women on my cap table and also to democratize who we had as our investors, you know, we're building for consumers, we're building a platform that helps people improve their financial lives. So I wanted to make that available to our audience as well. So we crowdfunded part of our seed round too. And that is a way you see a lot more women coming onto crowdfunding platforms to invest in businesses that they believe in. And it kind of acts as a bit of an entry route for women who might think about one day becoming angel investors and putting in slightly larger tickets. Um, and I guess in kind of more general terms, I'm seeing more good stuff. Um, I'm seeing more activity amongst the VC community, more female founder office hours, more mentorship. I'm not sure how that's translating into check sizes. So I would love for the VC community to report more so that it's action you know going to what julie said it's it's all about what are the positive actions that we can take so not just talking not just providing support but actually providing the one thing that unlocks everything which is getting more capital into women-led businesses i'm seeing some great angel investors publicly coming out and putting on their linkedin profiles that they are primarily investing in women i think that's great from a signaling perspective but overall you know, with all of this positive stuff, the odds are still very much stacked against us. You know, last year, the amount of money that went to female-led businesses actually went backwards. Um, and I think that puts a ceiling sometimes on ambition. I think we hear a lot about there being a confidence gap for women entrepreneurs, and I actually don't see it. What I see is an access to capital gap. And if you know that the odds are stacked against you, then you're going into a slightly rigged system. And I think it's it it does curb ambition. There are a couple of really interesting points there. I absolutely agree with you on the confidence gap point. And um, I hear this quite a lot. People talking about how female founders, you know, need um, they need extra support because they're not as confident. And I just don't see it. The female founders I know are, you know, the most courageous go-getting women that I've ever met. And I'm certainly not brave enough to start my own business. Um, but there's this rhetoric around, um, you know, almost female founders being sort of slightly bubble wrapped. And um, I don't think it's a helpful rhetoric. So I, I love it when I hear people saying, I don't think there's a confidence gap. It's it's not us, it's you. You need to you need to fund our businesses. Um, so I'm, I'm cheering from the sidelines there. And um, the other point I thought was really interesting on what you just said is that it's the point about check size, because it's not about the number. It's not just about the number of um, female-led businesses that are being supported, but as you say, the check size. And we also know that 
um, anecdotally, female founders tend to ask for less money. Um, and so um, obviously, if you ask for less, you know, there's a there's a, a large chance that you're going to get less. And actually, as you say, accountability is really, really important. And that transparency of not just you know, the fact that you are funding female-led businesses, but how much money are you giving them? Are you giving them the same amounts that you would give a, a business led by by men? So I, I love that. And Julie, I know transparency is one of the things that the, the Rose Review, and that's one of the the um, interventions, isn't it? The uh, initiatives is, is more transparency. And that is why we introduced the Investing in Women Code in July 2019. And, and those 80 signatories have all got senior representatives from their, their banks that have signed up to commit to sharing the data. And what this data does, and it was great to hear Caroline mention this, is whether you're, you're a mainstream bank like NatWest or whether you're a VC or an investor, you will share the lending um, figures. So um, the comparisons to the monies lent to female owned um, 100%, so female only um, SMEs, to male owned SMEs, and also to those mixed ownership, because we, we you know, absolutely know that a diverse sort of board and leadership team um, is really positive as well. So we're waiting for the first results to come out for the uh, Investing in Women Co. The first tranche of data um, has been delayed because of COVID, but was taken during the COVID period last year. So we're all quite quite excited. But at first, the first tranche of data will always be the baseline. What's really important once we've we've seen that data is that we work on all of those other interventions, initiatives, support, which include a lot of the other business support, um, um, including um, the uh, accelerator hub programs, including the mentoring programs, including actually going into schools and supporting that next generation and giving them the choice of enterprise as an option. Once we've done all of that as well, hopefully we will see a positive traction. But one thing I would really like to touch on is in that investor space. And again, really interested in, Car in what Caroline said when she said, absolutely right, less than 2% of VC funding goes to all female uh, teams. And that is why the Rose Review Council over the last 12 months has been working on the guidance and best practice examples for VCs and private equity institution investors. Um, and these investor guidelines will really help change um, the way forward. So let's just take a step back and, and look at the reasons why we're in this position. When you look at investment teams, less than 13% of senior people in the UK on the investment teams are women. Half have no women at all. So when you reflect on that, actually, if they're the decision makers, it's not a lot of surprise that there's probably some unconscious biases kicking kicking in, which is why we've got those horrific figures of less than 2% VC funding going to women. So that's less than 4% of deals. So what these guidelines really look at, and it's broken down into four segments. And first of all, it's the talent acquisition. We need to get more women um, on those investment teams. We need to retain the women that are on them and we actually need to develop the women so they get into the senior positions. So that is um, the number one sort of, uh, if, if you like, sort of guideline. The second one is the internal education, which includes culture and policy. We do need in those organisations the unconscious bias training, making sure that when you go and pitch, you know, the, the, the panel you're pitching to is diverse as well. So there's a real understanding 
uh, you know, the extra sort of um, barriers faced, if you like, by the entrepreneur, but also an understanding of the products and services uh, offered. The third guideline is, is the outreach and the access to deal flow. And again, unconscious bias comes into that. And the final one is the influence and external guidance and portfolio management. So these, these guidelines were released probably about 10 days ago, but really important, I think, that anybody in that space has a read through. We do showcase some best practices in there. And these were put together by the experts and by that minority group of women that do actually work in the investment teams in the UK. I've read the guidelines. What I really like about them is that they are actions based. So there's a checklist. I love a good checklist. You can't be a lawyer and not love a checklist. Um, but there's a checklist. So, you know, you can you can tick off what you've achieved. It's so clear to follow. And actually, I think a lot of the suggestions apply to a much wider audience than just institutional investors. You know, if any business just looked at the, the talent section and the culture section that, you know, and implemented all the, those um, those actions that are in there, I'm sure that would make a, a, a massive difference to the diversity of their organizations. Um, but it, it's quite interesting. We've kind of both um, Julie, you and Caroline have talked about, um, you know, getting more women in at that decision making and getting more women um, investing um, themselves. And I suppose that, you know, almost comes full circle back to that sort of female financial literacy and financial empowerment point um, that, you know, we just don't have women at that point making those investment decisions. Why do you think that is? I, I think until probably... 18 months, two years ago, there was a lack of role models. But now when you look out there, you know, we've got Alison Rose, you know, the first CEO of a mainstream bank in the UK. Um, absolutely incredible role model. You know, you've got Anne Bowden running a challenger bank, you know, again, another amazing role model. And, and the one thing that the council I know are going to work on looking at 2021 is actually a list of all of those, if you like, senior women in the investor space because I think it's the unknown at the moment. And, and I think as we've shown with female entrepreneurs, once you can start highlighting the role models, it does inspire others. And it you know instills that belief that actually that is a really good um, career option. And uh, you know it gives you the belief that you can succeed in a senior position in finance. And Caroline, do you think it's also linked to the fact that um, a lot of the um, kind of personal financial um, planning um, uh, industry has been aimed at, at men. I mean, I, I hear from um, women that I know anecdotally that, you know, their financial advisors don't talk to them about EIS, don't talk to them about investing in early stage. Yeah, I do. I think it is. It's all part of the same systemic stuff, really. If it hasn't been presented as something that is for you, then it's understandable that you won't have got into it. Um, it, I guess for a long time it was something of a closed shop. And if you're not if you're not explaining to high earning women that here is a way for them to get great tax incentives um, and at the same time putting money into businesses they believe in, then, yeah, you're just not going to get it. And I see a lot of good work being done in that area, you know, Angel Academy and others who are running a lot of programs to encourage more women into angel investing. I also think in the UK, we just don't have the, quite the same culture around it that you see in the US. You see a lot more um, women investors in the US because it's 
culturally, it's a little bit more expected that you generally invest in the stock market. And then for those who are interested, that then just develops into investing in earlier stage companies on a more individual basis. And, you know, we so when we have the stats in the UK that we have maybe only 70 percent of women who don't invest in the stock market overall, then you can see how that would easily translate into very, very few women feeling comfortable or knowledgeable enough to invest in individual businesses at the kind of the seed stage. And Julie, you mentioned the importance of going into schools and talking to schools about financial uh, services, working in the financial services industry. Do you think that's part of the solution? Yes, I think that's part of the solution. But when I talked about going into schools, I, I think it's really important in that, you know, 14 to, to probably 18 year old age group, um, not only to, to let everybody know from whatever your background that uh, a career in the financial services is an option, but actually a career in enterprise. And, and you know, with digitization, fewer jobs, I think more and more people will be setting up new businesses. So actually, why haven't we got enterprise on the curriculum in schools? And the, the best schools out there, they do young enterprise programs, they do work with with partners and we've got our program ourselves called Dream Bigger where we go into schools and talk about the importance of positive mindset and how entrepreneurship is an opportunity for everybody. But I feel that should be available to every single people, not just those that are go to uh, the schools where they've got a really forward thinking sort of head that has it on the, uh, the agenda. We've mentioned sort of adjacently mentoring. We've talked a lot about some of those positive actions, uh, which, as I've said, you know, we absolutely love the focus on the positive. We hear so much about the challenges for um, female founders. What we really want to do is, is focus on the positive. What we can all do is take some own personal accountability. What can I do that is positive to help support female uh, female founders you're both already doing so much so I almost feel cheeky in asking this question but what one more step are you going to take this year to support female founders the one thing that I really want to uh, make sure happens in 2021 and beyond is to make mentoring accessible and available to all female founders and especially those from the underrepresented um, communities and that will mean for a corporate like ourselves, because, you know, we, we as a bank aren't always trusted by those communities. So we do need to work with outreach channels, with partners, with organisations like the British Library, local enterprise partnerships, growth hubs, to make sure as a collective, we reach all of those, um, if you like, less privileged um, communities to make sure that they get the same support. Because I do see going forward, um, more new businesses being set up. And I think everybody should be able to access all business support and especially mentors. Yeah, that's amazing, Julie. Well done. And I'm very, I'd be very happy to connect you to any of the communities that I'm part of if you want some additional ones to add to your stable of outreach. Me personally, I am pulling together my network better and I'm kind of trying to go into bat for female founders who are maybe a few steps behind me. So as I'm fundraising right now and talking to investors, I'm also mapping out which investors I think are ones which should be and could be introduced to other female founders. So any investors that I meet, I'm basically, if I know that there are other women who are raising money that I think would be a good fit for you, I, I ask you and I make that introduction. So I am trying to be incredibly proactive. I'm actually saying I'm being much more American 
about it, much more transactional in my approach. I used to work in the US and it was always so much easier to raise money over there to get contacts because everybody was very comfortable opening up their contact book. And I think in the UK and in Europe, we have a slightly more closed culture around that. So I'm trying to be more American in it and open up my network to other women who need access to capital, who need access to mentors. And so I'm trying very much to walk the walk and not just talk about it. So that's kind of my pledge this year, that if you need intros, if you need help, I will try to provide it to the extent that I have it in my network. Thank you both. We are very much um, here as, as part of CMS Equip um, and, and CMS more generally about walking the walk, just not just talking the talk. Um, thank you both so much for uh, joining me today. Um, thank you, Julie Baker from NatWest Group and Caroline Hughes from LifeTies. Um, if you would like more information on LifeTies, then um, you can find um, Caroline and her co-founder at LifeTies.com. And for more information on how NatWest is supporting female entrepreneurs, go to business.natwest.com and search for women in business. And then finally, if you want to hear more about CMS's startup program Equip or our Female Founders Initiative Lead Hers, go to the startup section of cms.law.